Well, what is the, the one thing that you think, uh, if you had it, or if it changed, would make your whole life a lot better? You think if you just had that one thing, or if this one thing could be changed, uh, then everything else would change. Life would be easier. You could relax, you would be less stressed and anxious, and everything would be better. And maybe you think if I just had a, a little more money, things would be easier. Or maybe uh, if work wasn't so difficult, I would be less stressed. Or maybe you have uh, some sort of health issue and you think if this would just go away, then I'd be happy, life would be good. Or maybe it's a relationship with a spouse or with a child or with a parent or uh, some other relative or a coworker or a neighbor. And you think if the other person was, would just do blank, then I could relax, everything would be better, you know, I wouldn't even worry about you know, my other problems, it's just that this one thing was taken care of. And today as we continue this series in the Gospel according to Luke, we're seeing this uh, up-close picture of who Jesus is and what it means to be his disciple. And we'll see two stories uh, that build on and complement one another, and they're actually building on uh, the passage we're going to look at next week, the building up to that. And in them, Jesus encounters two people who have uh, deep hurts, and big needs. And these two people uh, each had one thing in mind that they were thinking, if I could just have this, if this could change, my whole life would be better. It would completely change everything. If they had that one thing, everything else would be better. And they both pursued Jesus with intensity, believing that he's the person uh, that can take care of their deep hurts and their big needs. He go, they go after him. They overcome obstacles in their way of getting to him because they believe he can give them that one thing they need. He can take care of it. And so both these stories are going to highlight Jesus' power and his authority. And that's what drives them to him. They, because they believe uh, what they believe about him and what he's like and what he's able to do. They're driven to him uh, with these hurts and these needs that they have. So think for yourself, where do you take your deepest needs and your greatest hurts? Who or what do you pursue in order to relieve them? Who or what do you rely upon to make your deepest hurts and your greatest needs better? And for me, I often rely on myself. I try to relieve you know, my, my problems, my deepest hurts, my biggest needs, you know, through you know, trying harder. If I just tweak this, or if I just do this, or this could just change, or if I could figure out the way to do this, then that thing would be better. I think that I can figure it out. Or maybe I'll look to something to kind of feel the relief of it. Maybe I'll look to, to food. Like, you know, I just, you know, I just want to get something, go out to eat. Like, oh, that'll, I'll feel better. Oh, I just want to watch some you know, Netflix. I just want to you know, be in my basement, on my couch, and watch Netflix. And that's going oh, to like kind of take away those hurts or those needs I have. And I pursue a solution on my own. And I pursue something in creation to give me the healing that I desire. And so for yourself, what do you pursue when you have deep needs and great hurts? What do you turn to when you have that happen in your life? Man, I just have a big need here. I have this big problem. I have this big issue. Or I'm just really hurt. I'm, in, you know, I'm feeling like I'm in darkness. I'm just struggling. Where do you go? What do you turn to? Who do you trust in? Or what do you trust in? And the first, we have these two stories. One about a leper and one about a paralyzed man. A man with leprosy and a man who is paralyzed. So we'll look at the leper first in verses uh, 12 through 16, chapter, Luke chapter 5. And verse 12 begins by connecting us back to Jesus' mission statement back at the end of chapter 4. He said, you know, I must preach the good news to other towns as well. I need to go to them 
and I need to go preach the good news there. And, and verse 12 locates us in one of those cities. Jesus has been going from town to town, and now one of these cities, this story happens. And in one of them, a man full of leprosy uh, comes up to him. And perhaps you don't really know what leprosy is. And it, the modern-day leprosy uh, is called, it got renamed Hansen's disease by the uh, scientist who discovered the bacteria that causes it. And I don't know about you, but that isn't really something I'd like to be named after. You know, Mitch's disease. You know, like, that's not really my you know, top of my bucket list. But anyway, it's called Hansen's disease. Uh, and leprosy in Bible times uh, didn't refer specifically to modern-day leprosy. It, this guy didn't necessarily have uh, Hansen's disease. Um, because the word for leprosy in the language, uh, they had a kind of a bucket of about like 40 different skin conditions. And so it's not, it, we're not sure whether um, he had the leprosy um, in the Bible that includes Hansen's disease. It could have been what he had, um, but uh, it could have been some other skin issue. But even if this is the case, even if they're not the exact same, learning about Hansen's disease can give us a sense for what was it like to be this guy? and having leprosy in Bible times. And Hansen's disease often shows itself with bumps on the skin or other alterations and, and things that happen to your skin. And what it does is it eventually damages the nerves um, so that you can't feel when you get cut or when you get burned. And so people will hurt themselves, but they can't feel it, and they'll get infection. That often leads to bigger issues that can become very serious. And often, uh, because other like extremities, like toes and fingers, are damaged, the body, it's called... They, it reabsorbs them, and so people will like, it'll look like they have missing fingers and stuff, and that's like an effect of the disease, is that they've lost feeling, there's infection on the body, kind of like reabsorbs this. You, if you look up leprosy in, you know, on Google Images or something, you'll see some um, pretty difficult uh, things that people are going through. And Hansen's disease, modern-day leprosy, is easily curable through antibiotics, but it's devastating when it goes untreated, and uh, it's actually difficult uh, to catch Hansen's disease from someone. You can't just be sitting next to someone or touch them or, or shake their hand. It spreads through, we're all familiar with these terms, respiratory droplets. Um, but it's not really like super contagious uh, like the flu. And so it's not like you can catch it very easily. And even if you did catch it, 95% uh, of adults have an immune system strong enough to just you know, wipe it out. It doesn't affect 95% of adults. And it seems that the leprosy in Bible times was, was considered contagious because if somebody had leprosy, had this skin disease, they had to like isolate themselves, they had to like quarantine uh, from the rest of the community. And it had, so it might have had this health effect where it's like, okay, we don't want other people to catch any, whatever the diseases you have, there could be 40 different options, we don't want anybody else to get this. But also there was a religious component in that if you had a skin disease, you're considered uh, ritually unclean is the word. You couldn't uh, attend uh, worship services in like the tabernacle or in the temple and you had, you know, that could be a health reason, don't go in these crowds, but it also is like a, a way to be taught about God. Like, this is what is required to approach God, that God uh, can't have, you know, disease and sickness and death and sin in his presence. And so if you have that, you're, uh, you can't go and worship. So it's teaching a spiritual lesson, but also is perhaps protecting others from infection. And even though uh, disease, Hansen's disease today is easily treatable, uh, the CDC writes this about it. Despite effective treatment, leprosy is one of the world's most stigmatized diseases, and people living with leprosy-related disabilities in many countries are shunned, denied basic human rights, and discriminated against. 
The stigma of leprosy affects the physical, psychological, social, and economic well-being of those with leprosy, contributing to the cycle of poverty in the affected regions. And modern leprosy has this in common, though how that was just described, that's what uh, the Bible times leprosy was like, is that if you had uh, one of these various skin diseases, it was devastating, because it means you were separated from society, from religious life, from your family, from your home, uh, you weren't able to work, you had to rely on charity of others, and so it was devastating. Living with this constant ailment is difficult enough, you know, it's like, I've got this issue with my skin, but you would also live with this stigma of like, whoa, lep- you know, leprosy person, like, you know, you just have this kind of like, you know, you're yucky, we, we can't be around people, and you have this isolation. And so this makes this man's appearance in this city all the more surprising. He's showing up in the city. You know, people are around Jesus all the time. And he shows up in the city uh, with leprosy. But he's showing his faith in Jesus to meet his desperate need. He risks going into public and all the things people would say and all the ridicule he would get because he believes Jesus can help him. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, in other words, Lord, if you desire, if you want to, you can make me clean. The man knows Jesus can make him clean. The question is whether Jesus desires to and wants to. And Jesus responds by doing the unthinkable. The man's sitting there at his feet, and he reaches out and touches him. You're not supposed to touch a person with leprosy. If you touch him, like now you are either infected, or you're, at the very least you're considered unclean according to Old Testament laws. But Jesus reaches out and touches this man. I mean, if you consider how long has it been since anybody has touched this guy? How long has he had this disease and that he can't touch people, can't be close to people? Jesus reaches out and touches him and he says, I will be clean. So in other words, I want to, I desire, be clean. I do desire to heal you, be clean. And Jesus is not contaminated by touching this man with leprosy. Instead, he removes the leprosy from the person. Instead of the man's skin disease transferring to Jesus, Jesus is Holiness and his cleanness transfers to the man. It like works the opposite of how it's supposed to work. Is that Jesus is now supposed to be unclean, but instead Jesus gives him cleanness. In this act, Jesus changes man's life. He's not only released from this disease and restored to health, but now he can be restored to his family, to society, to society, to religious life, to work. He can live a normal life again. And then Jesus says, "No, don't tell anybody. I don't want you to go around saying I took leprosy from you." But he says, instead, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is what the law required in the Old Testament. If you were uh, unclean uh, and then your skin disease got better, you had to go to the priest and then they would inspect you. They wouldn't make you clean. They would inspect you and they would give the pronouncement, okay, you're clean now and then you can return. And then there'd be a sacrifice that you would do next time you're at the tabernacle or next time you're at the temple that would allow you to re-enter society. This was the process for re-entering, for him to be restored to the community. And Jesus wants him to go through those proper channels. And so in this act, Jesus both breaks the Old Testament law because he touches a guy who's unclean. That was against the law. But he also upholds the law. He tells this guy, no, I want you to go through the proper channels to go and become clean yourself. Despite telling man to be silent, Jesus' fame continued to spread. More and more people hear about him. And in contrast, uh, he, you know, these people are coming to be healed of whatever disease they had. But at the same time, uh, as these people are coming, Jesus would withdraw to the wilderness or desolate places to pray. And this is where we see, we've already seen this um, when he goes 
And after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness and he's fasting. That's when he's tempted by the devil. We already saw this after he had the big ministry in Capernaum. He taught and he healed people and then he goes and he withdraws and he uh, goes and be, to be by himself with God. And Jesus' pattern was to engage and then withdraw, engage and then withdraw, engage and then withdraw. And as his followers today, uh, we, how do we draw our strength uh, in order to engage in the mission that God has given us? If we're just engaged, 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 you know, doing, you know, whether you, and all of you, by the way, have our ministers and have a ministry. I'm not the minister here. I'm supposed to help you be able to do the ministry to the people in your life and to one another. And so, and the only way we can do the ministry that God has given us is if we also withdraw, because that's our source of strength, source of power. And if we don't have the priorities of Jesus, we can't expect to have uh, the ministry results of Jesus. If it's like, you know, I just got to do, 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 but we never stop to just be with God. We can't expect to see uh, to be able to do what Jesus said that we're supposed to be able to do. So we move to the paralytic now. On another day, Jesus was teaching in someone's house, and at this teaching session are some people that are present uh, that were named are the Pharisees uh, and the teachers of the law. And these are like religious teachers in Israel's day. And they came from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. In other words, they traveled from all over the place in Israel. And the Pharisees and their scribes were a group whose concern was uh, the kingdom of God. They desired to see God return to Israel for his presence to come back and to set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And they believed that this would happen uh, by the nation keeping the law. If we can just keep the law, if we're just faithful to what God has commanded, then he will respond and he will set up his kingdom on earth. He will send the Messiah who will reign over us, the, the Christ, and he will set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. His presence would return to the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, and he will liberate us from our oppressors. At this point, it's the Roman Empire. He will liberate us and give our land back if we can just keep the law. And be, So because of this belief, they took God's commands, uh, God's statutes, God's laws very seriously. And they wanted to help the nation keep the law as well. They interpreted and applied the law to daily life. Okay, this is what this means for you. This is, this is how you rest on the Sabbath. It means these things. And they also even created a fence around the law. So it's like you have the laws, and it's like, well, we don't want to even, even get close to stepping over those. So let's create this fence around the law of these other ways that will kind of create a buffer. Like, we're going we're gonna to like be so serious about keeping the law that even if we break one of our you know, daily life practices and rituals, we'll still be keeping the law because there's like this fence, protective fence around it. And since their concern was the teaching, teaching the law and the kingdom of God, Naturally, they're interested in some guy who's a teacher, everyone's calling a teacher, and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And so they come down to check out, uh, what is this guy like? What, this guy's gaining all his popularity, talking to people about the kingdom of God, and interpreting the law, and teaching people in the synagogues. What's this all about? And Luke intentionally tells us they were sitting uh, as Jesus taught, and Jesus was perhaps sitting as well. But if you remember when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, when the scripture got read, he sat down, and then he taught. And they're not sitting down necessarily to teach. It's, this is happening in somebody's house, but it's perhaps showing the stance of we're going to judge, we're in this place of authority to judge and assess what this guy is saying, what this guy is teaching while everyone else is, is standing. And Jesus is not only teaching, but it says the power of the Lord was with him to heal. This is going to set up what will happen later in this uh, teaching session. And a, a group of men uh, come carrying a paralyzed man on a bed to this house 
but they can't get through uh, because there's, you know, just kind of like a packed house. You can't get through, standing room only kind of thing. And the houses in that day would have like a set of stairs that would go up to the roof, and the roof would be uh, have like sticks and straw, and then some layers of mud, uh, perhaps like mud dried mud slabs that would be used for your roof. And so they take them up there and they start removing those dried mud slab roof tiles. And after creating this hole big enough, they send the paralyzed man down through uh, and down to Jesus. And so what will Jesus do? They interrupting his teaching session. They made a hole in whoever's house this is. Uh, will he rebuke them for interrupting? Will he tell them, you know, you know, wait your turn, these people are kind of here first, they kind of budged in line. Uh, but no, verse 20 says, when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And some, some translations say that man should actually be a friend. It's another way of saying friend. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And it says, Jesus saw their faith, both of the paralyzed man and of his friends. And we aren't even told that they said anything. That is, he is lower down. And Jesus responds. Jesus can see their faith by their actions. He can see what they believe by what they do. And they've not let anything stop them from getting this paralyzed man to Jesus. And what's interesting is that Jesus' first action is not to heal the man of the paralysis. Instead, he says to a man or friend, your sins are forgiven you. So do they carry this guy? Do they do all this work just to get this guy's sins forgiven? Is that what they wanted? Is that what the paralyzed man wanted from this uh, interaction? And surely we can imagine that. Well, I was hoping to be able to walk again after all this effort, so you know, they like, oh, I guess we'll wheel him back up here and carry him back home, but what he forgives them is the very first thing. And it, it shows us that our greatest need in life uh, is not physical, uh, but spiritual, having a relationship restored with God. Jesus does not first restore his physical ability to walk, but his spiritual ability to walk with God. And it can make us ask, you know, what is it that we most want from Jesus? What do we pursue him for? What do you go to him for? What do you hope that he will do for you? What do you think the best thing he's done for you is at this point in your life? The Pharisees, the Pharisees and scribes react to Jesus' pronouncement that this man's are forgiven, asking, well, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, who does this guy think he is? He doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. What is he doing telling this guy he's forgiven? And Jesus will again pronounce forgiveness of sins on someone in Luke chapter 7. And those present react the same way. Who, who is this guy? Who do you think he is? And there was a prescribed way to be forgiven of your sins by God. You would go to the temple where God's presence was, where there was a priest there who had the authority to receive your sacrifice. That was The sacrifice was dying in the place for your sins. And they would receive it, they would kill it, they would burn it on the altar, and then your sins were forgiven. And so the place was the temple, the person was the priest, and what you had to do is bring a sacrifice. And now you see Jesus forgiving someone without the temple, without a sacrifice, and without a priest, he, he's taking upon himself the authority to pronounce forgiveness. So who does this guy think he is? And the charge of blasphemy, they say, this guy's speaking blasphemies. It's serious. If that conviction can be proved, the Old Testament law said you should be stoned. This is somebody who's like, denying God, and they're stepping on God's toes, basically, of like, well, this is God's right and privilege to forgive people. And if you get convicted of that, then it's like the, God says, you know, purge the evil person from your community. 
And blasphemy is what Jesus is charged with by the assembly before his death. And that's why the, finally they say, we're going to put him to death. And blasphemy occurs when someone violates God's majesty or his name. One instance is when someone claims for themselves an attribute or an action that belongs only to God. It takes what rightfully belongs to the creator and gives it to a creature, part of his creation. So they're seeing this guy, Jesus, is stepping in God's exclusive right and privilege to forgive. It's no one else's. And this is why Jesus' actions are labeled as blasphemy. In the eyes of the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus does not have the authority to forgive. That authority belongs to God, and the human agents he's designated as the ones that have that authority are the priests at the temple who represent him. They're the ones who can pronounce forgiveness on earth. And Jesus perceives the thoughts of their hearts, and he responds at the end of verse 22, starting there. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the, one, the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This man's sins are against God. And so God is the only one who can forgive him. If, uh, two of you guys were fighting, uh, you know, Brian and Larry are fighting, I can't be like, Larry, I forgive you for, you know, for what Brian did to you. And it's like, well, what are you talking about? It has to go between those two persons. Only Brian or Larry can forgive one another if one of them is wronging the other person. And God has set up a human representative on earth to facilitate forgiveness. Priests. And so what gives Jesus the authority to forgive when he's not a priest? They're not in the temple, and a sacrifice hasn't been offered. And so Jesus says, I'm going to prove my authority. He backs up his words with action. He knows it's easy to say, oh, your sins are forgiven. I mean, I can sit in here and say, all of you, your sins are forgiven, but do I really have the authority to say that, to pronounce forgiveness on you? And Jesus is like, you know, talk is cheap, talk is easy. It's just like we said last week, predicting your death is easy, we're all going to die, and it's easy for someone to say, your sins are forgiven. But is, does he have the authority to do so? In the eyes of the religious leaders, he doesn't. So Jesus offers a proof. It's not easy to make a paralyzed man walk again. I think we'd all agree with that, he's thinking. And so as Jesus talks to them, I just kind of love how this story is, uh, is, is told, about how he's saying, you know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he's talking to them, and then he turns to the paralyzed man and says, rise and walk. And the guy gets up, picks up his bed, and goes home. And these words of healing that accomplish what he says are meant to... These words of healing that accomplish what he says are meant to prove that his words of healing uh, or forgiveness accomplish what he says. And so, because my words saying you're healed accomplish what I, what I said they would do, my words of saying you're forgiven accomplish what I said they would do. He, he really is forgiven by Jesus' words, just like he really is healed by Jesus' words. But what about this phrase, uh, son of man? Maybe, I mean, you read through the Gospels and you're like, Jesus keeps calling himself son of man. I'm like, big deal. You know, I'm a son of a man. <laughs> some of you guys are daughters. Some of you are daughters of a man. What's the big deal with this? He says, you know, but that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Why does he say that? He, that's his favorite way to refer to himself. Jesus uh, doesn't really call himself the Christ. He doesn't call himself the son of God. He calls himself the son of man. He doesn't say that you may know that the Messiah or the Christ has a 
authority on earth to forgive sins. And the phrase son of man, it can mean simply son of a human. You know, oh, sure, yeah, I'm a son of man. Sure, I'm a daughter of man. It can just mean you know, son of a human. In the book of Ezekiel, God addresses Ezekiel, calling him son of man, uh, to emphasize his humanness, that you're a human, I'm God, and now it's time to listen. And so Jesus could just be saying that you may know a human or this human has authority on earth to forgive sins. Maybe that's saying, you know, I'm going to show you that a human has, you know, this human has authority on earth to forgive sins. And only God alone can do it, but I'm going to show you that I have authority to forgive sins. You could just be saying that. But Son of Man is also a key phrase in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. There, Daniel sees a vision of God where he's brought before, uh, he's brought this man, one like a Son of Man, is brought before God who's called the Ancient of Days, and then something happens. And verses 13 and 14 of Daniel, chapter 7, say this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, referring to God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this one, like a son of man, comes into God's presence and is granted kingship, and a kingdom is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that, uh, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And you have an everlasting kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And so, you know, is this kind of sounding familiar? What uh, is said to this son of man? Does it kind of sound familiar to what eventually we know of Jesus? Jesus says... Uh, at, at the end of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And we're to make disciples of all nations, people from every tribe and language and tongue to worship him around the throne. And then later in this vision, uh, Daniel has shown that the Son of Man will go through suffering. And then after that, the kingdom will come. The Son of Man, the people he represents, will be opposed by other kingdoms. And so, is Jesus really claiming to be the Son of Man figure from Daniel 7, who receives an everlasting kingdom from God. He could just be saying, oh, so that you may know a human has authority. This human has authority in order to forgive sins. And here, and this, the, re- the reason that it could be taken one of these two ways, that it could just be him saying, like, you know, a human has authority, is because it's ambiguous. It's not super clear. And we, I said a couple weeks ago, um, I think it was two or three weeks ago, about if we're playing the game of Pictionary, and I'm given a word, and I need to draw that word, and none of you know what that word is, and I want you to see it. You know, I start drawing it, and that's why I have a backup marker. Oh, well, that's sad. But I have more. Don't worry. So if I start drawing a picture, you guys could be like, oh, like if I start drawing a crown, and then you're like, oh, he's drawing a king. He's drawing a king. You know, you're drawing. And if in Jesus' day, it would be like, oh, you're you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the one God has promised. You're the Christ. And he starts drawing that crown, but he uses this ambiguous, unclear term, Son of Man, because it's like, is he saying he's the Son of Man from Daniel 7? Or is he just calling himself a human? I'm not sure. And he wants to fill in the picture more fully, because their view of what it meant for God to be, Jesus to become king, and decided to become king, did not include a cross. They didn't, how could the kingdom come with the cross? If you're wearing the crown, of the Messiah, how are you going to die? And so Jesus starts revealing to them very clearly, I'm the Messiah. What comes into their minds right away is, 
your coming glory, everlasting dominion, kingdom on earth. You're going to kick out the Romans. We're getting Jerusalem back. We're getting Israel back. God's coming back to his temple. But Jesus, that's not what happened. That's their view of how it was going to happen. And passages like Daniel 7 and the Psalms uh, and Isaiah 53 show, no, when this Messiah comes, it's going to, the kingdom is going to come through suffering. The kingdom is going to come through the cross. That's how God establishes his kingdom on earth. But they weren't seeing that. And so he uses this uh, image of the Son of Man so he can fill in the picture more fully. No, let me keep filling in the picture of what it's going to look like for me to be king. I don't want you to guess what I'm drawing before I'm done drawing it. And so he uses Son of Man. You know, this is what the Son of Man is going to be like. And he starts drawing, and there's, oh, this guy looks like he has a lot of authority. So he's drawing a crown. And he starts talking about suffering. And he's like, what? What, what is he talking about? And the picture becomes clear uh, finally at the end. And when Jesus is put on trial, he quotes from Daniel 7. You'll see me come on the clouds, and you'll see me seated at the right hand of God. And that's when the, the religious leaders, the teachers, are like, well, he's, he's claiming to be the Son of Man character, and then they condemn him based on that. And we start to see here the different responses to Jesus. This controversy with the religious teachers about forgiveness is the first of five different controversies we're going to see in a row where they start you know, kind of having this confrontation, this conflict with Jesus. And the prophet Simeon warned Jesus' mother Mary that conflict would surround her son, Jesus. He will expose what is in people. And we saw the very first controversy back in Nazareth when the people responded to his sermon and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And here we see the first controversy with the religious teachers. And so some come to Jesus with their desperate needs, like the leper and the paralytic. And some come to Jesus to evaluate and judge him, like the religious teachers. And like Simeon told Mary, some people will be lifted up because of him and some people will be brought low. The humble will be lifted up and the proud will be brought down. And so what about us? Who are you in this story? Are you falling at Jesus' feet, bringing your desperate need to him as the only one who can meet it? Or are you sitting in judgment of Jesus, waiting for him to prove himself, waiting to see if he really is who he says he is? What are you going to do to show me that? You know, are you laying everything at his feet, are you trusting in him as your only hope? Have you bowed yourself before him as the one with the power and authority to release you from what burdens you and to restore you to who you're made to be? Or are you standing back, keeping your distance? You know, I'll stay seated. I'm not going to get too excited. I'll stay seated and evaluating, keeping him at arm's length, you know, and withholding from him, trying to decide if you can trust him. And Jesus is good news for broken people. Jesus is good news for people who are struggling, suffering, and who have sinned their way into a mess. Jesus is good news for people who are held captive, who are oppressed, who are pushed down and pushed out, and who have realized that they don't have the resources they need to deal with the issues in their life. Those people come and lay themselves at Jesus' feet because they know, I have no hope, I don't have the resources to deal with this, I have no hope besides him. You're the only one that can set me free from this. You're the only one who can liberate me. He's the only one who can break the shackles and relieve the burden that I have. Jesus is good news for people with problems, for people with sin and sickness and suffering and selfishness. Jesus is the healer of the world's brokenness. But for those who feel like they're pretty well off, for those who feel like, you know, I'm keeping all the rules, for those who think they can handle life on their own, for those who don't see themselves as needy, as weak, and as sinful, for those who think they have it together, or are still trying to convince other people or in themselves that they have it all together, 
For those people, Jesus is more of an intrusion. He's someone to assess. He's someone who can be kept at arm's length. He's someone to evaluate and learn about. And for us, maybe Jesus is someone to read about. Maybe he's someone to learn more about. Bible reading or Sunday sermon is about information so we can know more. But surrendering to Jesus, if if we have that mindset, we won't see surrendering to Jesus as a matter of life or death. Instead, he's someone, well, maybe I'll respect him and learn more about him, but he's not someone who's going to heal me, free me, restore me, and forgive me. And maybe he did that stuff long ago, but he's not doing it today. Today we just kind of study him like any other person who's died. We have records of their historical uh, events. And so which one are you? How desperately do you think you need Jesus? How desperately do you pursue him? And for me, I can convince myself that I'm pretty well off, that I've got things handled. Christianity, for me, can become more about what I do than about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in my life. It can be, you know, these are all the things I've got to do. These are the, the, the practices I've got to put in place. These are the, uh, the commands I need to obey. These are the strategies I need to implement. You know, I, I read scripture. I avoid sin. I try to love people like God tells me to. I try to be a good husband, father, and pastor like God tells me to. And, and through what I do, God's will is done and his purposes are accomplished. When I start thinking like that, I'm starting to sound a lot like these religious teachers who are thinking what I do, keeping these rules and doing these things, that's how the kingdom is going to come into our lives and into this world, into our community. Instead, do I know, believe, and feel that I have a desperate need for Jesus? So who or what do we think will release and restore us? That's Jesus' ministry, release and restoration. Where do we take our needs, hurts, and brokenness, looking for someone to that thing to restore us and release us? And we know something's wrong. But where do we go to fix it? And we may say, if only this would happen, if only I could do this, you know, if this thing in my life came together or stopped or started or you know got fixed, everything else would kind of be good. Like, I'd have a good life. Things would be easy. I could be less stressed, less anxious. Like, if that thing got fixed. And where do we go with those things? Who do we take those to? And these two men show us an example of prayer. And I know some of you are reading uh, this book in your gospel community. And years ago, Nick took uh, a few of us through it when we were going to the same church over in Libertyville, and one of the lines on it, uh, one of my favorite part from it, um, is on page 131, I don't think you're that far yet, uh, but let me read, you know, these men are, show us an example of prayer. You may think, well, Jesus was physically there. It's like, yeah, but they're coming before Jesus, they're talking to him, and they're asking him something. They're coming to his presence, putting themselves before him, and looking to receive something from him, through talking to him. That's what prayer is, talking to God. So let me read just these two paragraphs from page 131. It says, Be sure to remember that nothing in your daily life is so insignificant and so inconsequential that the Lord will not help you by answering your prayer. Someday you may perhaps be looking for some keys that you've lost. You must have them and you're in a hurry and you cannot find them. Go trustingly to God and tell him about your predicament. Or perhaps your little boy is out playing. You need him at once to run an errand for you, but you cannot take the time to look for him and to run the errand yourself. Tell it confidently to your Father in heaven. Do not forget, however, what we mentioned above, that prayer is ordained for the purpose of glorifying the name of God. Therefore, whether you pray for big things or for little things, say to God, if it will glorify thy name, 
then grant my prayer and help me. But if it will not glorify thy name, then let me remain in my predicament, and give me power to glorify thy name in the situation in which I find myself. And I imagine the words Jesus spoke to these two men were some of the most relieving, comforting, and life-changing words they've ever heard. Jesus speaks words to them that they long to hear. I will be clean. I do desire to hear you, heal you. Be clean. Friend, your, your sins are forgiven. I say to you, take, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this is Jesus' good news for them and for the world. Bring your needs to me. Bring your hurts to me. Bring yourself to me. And so how desperately do you think you need Jesus? Do you feel down, fall down on his feet in prayer? Do you fight to be in his presence at all costs like these two men did? And what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about Jesus will determine the intensity with which we pursue him. It will determine the amount of obstacles and the size of obstacles we will overcome to be with him. Do we believe we have a desperate need? Do we believe that Jesus is the only one who can meet it? In his heart for us is release and restoration. Release from what holds us down, what holds us back. Restoration to who God made us to be. And this is restoration to true humanity. What does it actually look to be a hum- like to be a human? He releases us from what breaks us and he restores what's broken. And so what do you need from Jesus? What do you think he will say in response? Notice that both of these men... Faith is expressed in clear action. Jesus can see their faith. And what do you do that allows Jesus to see your faith? Why I like this prayer from this book on prayer is Jesus' heart for us is release and restoration. But sometimes when we bring something to him, he tells us, you will get more healing and more freedom and more transformation from being in that struggle than for me to relieve it. And the prayer in this book said, If it will glorify thy name, then grant my prayer and help me. But if it will not glorify thy name, then let me remain in my predicament and give me the power to glorify thy name in the situation in which I find myself. And sometimes Jesus says, The struggle is going to bring more glory to God. It's going to bring more transformation to you, more freedom from you. Because our biggest enemies are sin and Satan, and ourselves. And so what you're going through is going to bring you more dependence on me, more reliance on me, more trust in me, more surrender to me, than if I just you know, took that away. And so it's often a, more of a crockpot approach than a microwave. Just, yep, I'm just going to microwave transformation in your life. And often it's like that slow, long process of being in the crockpot. And the pattern in transformation, for transformation goes, in Scripture goes from death to life, suffering then to glory. The path to true freedom, as Jesus will show, to his kingdom presence actually being in our life is through the cross. The cross is the way to him. He suffers, and then there's glory. That's where the kingdom uh, is experienced. It's the path he calls us to. It's the path Jesus walked. And God is clear that he is powerful enough to use your suffering, your hurt, and your hardships, and your challenges, and your difficulty for good. God, in love, will use the suffering of this world, physical, aspirational, relational, and, and so forth, to free us from what enslaves us, sin and Satan. God brings new life from, this ashes, from ashes. And often, I found myself over the past probably eight months, uh, eight months ago, I realized, man, I'm placing a burden on this world that it cannot bear. 
cannot fulfill. I'm placing infinite expectations on finite things. That if we expect this world to be everything we want it to be and fulfill our desires and be heaven on earth, that that's just not going to happen. We're, that's supposed to create a longing in us when we see the brokenness of the world and how things aren't right to actually look... There's got to be something that's going to fix this. And Jesus says, I'm going to fix it. And that's why I read from Revelation chapter 21, is that one day uh, he's going to make all things new, that the death will be no more, neither will there be crying nor pain anymore. He's making all things new. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. All the, the suffering and the brokenness of the world and the affliction and the pain that it exercises upon us, he's going to wipe all those tears away and it's going to be gone. Jesus will make this world new. And often we think that... Uh, I read this this week, and I read it before, but I couldn't find where I found it. But a writer was making the point that miracles are not a disruption of nature. We think, you know, the world's just going along, nature's just going along, and then a miracle is, oh, the laws of nature got kind of turned off for a minute there, and God did something, or Jesus did something that is a disruption of the laws of nature. But the reality is that sin and sickness... And disease and death are the disruption. Those are what don't belong in God's creation. And a miracle is not suspending uh, the laws of nature, but the restoration of nature to what it's supposed to be. And someone who believes in Jesus is a miracle. We're supposed to be loving God. That's a God restoring us to what it's supposed to be. And someone who is healed is a miracle. And like you saw in Revelation 21, what these men experience of having their physical issues healed uh, is a foretaste of what God is going to do in the future. It's that it's like a pre-taste, like pre-game or something. You, that he's, it's like a movie trailer. Like this is what it's going to be like in the future, and God let them, Jesus let them taste that in that moment now, and what His kingdom is going to be like in the future when He fully implements it uh, when heaven uh, comes to earth, and through His death He makes that available to us. In the end, if we are in Christ, everything that's true of Him becomes true of us. So as we think about evangelism and telling other people the good news, that's what evangelism means, the process of telling the good news. The focus of this passage is on who Jesus is and his power to heal and his authority to forgive and his implications for how we think about talking to others. Is uh, What do we believe uh, for ourselves? It starts with us. Do you believe Jesus is good news for your life? Do you believe that he can handle whatever it is you have going on? And then it goes out to others. If I believe that for myself, I'm going to believe that it's good news for another person's life. Are you saying, I need to get to him at whatever cost, and I need to get these people to him at whatever cost. And if I'm honest, I don't always believe that. Sometimes I think the good news about Jesus is kind of an interruption or intrusion or an imposition on somebody. I'm inconveniencing someone. I'm bothering them. And I think it's it's not going to sound like good news to them. If that's the case, we need to go back and look at what do I believe about Jesus for my life? Do I believe that I have this desperate need and he's the only one who can meet it? He's my only hope. And if we see that, it's like, well, I'm not giving somebody a good advice or a good way to live. I'm telling them, this is good news about something that has happened, that has changed the events of history, and it can change your today and your future, and you can be forgiven of your past. And if we start thinking of it that way, it can change uh, how we interact with other people. Like these men were interacting with Jesus. It's like, I just need to get to him. And those friends carrying the paralyzed man. We just need to get him to him, no matter the cost. Let's pray. God, would you give us hearts, minds, that see Jesus for who he is, and that see ourselves for who we are, that we are in desperate need. We do not have it all together. We're a mess. 
we have broken lives, and we've broken other people's lives, and we have sin and selfishness in us. Lord, would you give us eyes to see Jesus as the only one who can take care of all these issues, and would you give us ears to hear what he says to us as good news, or would you release us from what holds us and restore us to who you made us to be. In your son's name we pray, amen.